the indication for ERCP based on ASG 2010 guidelines were that you can proceed with ERCP if you have one very strong predictor or two strong predictors of cholelithiasis. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode five with our physician guest, Sonia Riker from Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles, speaking to us on the ASGE 2019 Stone Guideline Changes. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Good afternoon, Dr. Riker. How are you? Very good. How are you? I'm excellent. It is December 9th, and we're in Southern California, and it is 65 degrees and sunny. For all of you listening outside of Southern California, come here and visit. We'd, we'd love to have you anytime. So, Dr. Riker has been gracious enough to come on to Endocast, and I think I've been friends and known you, worked with you for probably nine or ten years now. Who's counting? <laughs> So it's exciting to have uh, one of my favorite local physicians uh, on Endocast. Not only that, she's also one of the most skilled physicians that I work with and just a lot of fun to be around if you ever get a chance to meet Dr. Riker. First question, just so the audience can get to know you a little bit better, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I know you've got a unique story growing up in Eastern Europe. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, I'd much rather talk about uh, the bile duct stones, but I can uh, tell you a little bit. I have a pretty non-unique story of being an immigrant from uh, former Soviet Union, and I uh, came here in 92 with my parents. And I guess I could say we were very determined to make it happen. And uh, I remember uh, we came here as a refugees uh, on a big plane with another 300-plus refugees. In the middle of that flight, there was a technical malfunction with the plane. So the plane almost didn't land it, so I almost didn't make it here. Uh, it was a lot of excitement when we finally landed. And I remember being there and was very happy and very excited to land in New York. And uh, maybe it is... Uh, something positive but I remember laughing and being happy about it and then one of the guys who was meeting us and I guess he was giving a, me a sort of a real dose of reality which is uh, always important as well said uh, well I hope you're still laughing uh, two or three years from now but it turns out it's uh, almost 30 years from now and we're still laughing and happy about it and we are where we are so that that's uh, that's kind of a little story from that time. That's a great story. I uh, appreciate you sharing. How about your GI training? Can you talk to us a little bit about how you landed in GI? Uh, the it's always all those things happen by accident. I uh, um, we actually came to San Diego and uh, I did my undergraduate in um, UC San Diego in Revel and. I just happened to work in the lab that work on the basic science in pancreas. I found it very exciting. And uh, then when I got in med school in uh, Irvine, 
I did a GI rotation, found it's even more fascinating. Um, you you know I'm not sure if listeners know uh, together with Phoenix Nguyen and Mary Lee Klinsky we uh, sort of making a women interventional endoscopy Western kind of group and we've been uh, doing different events uh, educational events as a part of that group and Phoenix Nguyen was my attending uh, when I was in medical school in uh, Irvine. And at that time, uh, there wasn't that many women who was doing interventional endoscopy. And I remember seeing her doing one of the first EUSs. I said, wow, that is amazing. And I know at that time, I just decided that's what I want to do. And I called my dad, um, and I said, Papa, I know what I'm going to do. He said, great, what is that going to be? Is it going to be dermatology? I said, No. It's going to be interventional GI. And he was familiar with the field a little bit, and he said, are you sure? I don't know of any women that do interventional GI. I said, no, I know. There's one. And that's how it started. And I was very fortunate to come for my residency to Harbor UCLA, and uh, I consider Dr. Eisen, who's my boss and my mentor here, uh, who really supported uh, all of us, and me in particular, in uh, Gross, and did my residency and then fellowship at uh, UCLA, uh, and came back here for interventional endoscopy year and just stayed as a faculty. So that that's uh, how sort of the landing in GI happened by accident. And uh, the first thing I think it would be nice to talk about is the recent update and the ASGE guidelines, which I believe it was in May. Mm-hmm was the first time that was updated in nine years. Yes, since 2010. And I think it's very important update. And I, I, I'm honored to be uh, at this uh, podcast. It also gave me, gave me an opportunity to review it uh, in more detail, and I appreciate it. It gave me a chance to, to learn more about it. Because we all have busy lives, and when we look at the uh, sort of 46 page, we're like, oh, Am I going to be able to read all of that? But this is, if there is one thing or one uh, reading, uh, this is the one that would be good to address in, uh, in detail. And um, I have to say that the team um, that was involved in developing those guidelines deserve tremendous accolade addressing very important issues. And uh, what they did, what the uh, guidelines address, there are four questions that they put out and uh, uh, analyzed in terms of the um, uh, grade framework uh, with the, in terms of recommendation as well as quality of evidence. There were additional five questions that um, included sort of a comprehensive review of the literature. And I actually like I know the, the grade framework questions have more kind of meat to it and more basis to it, but I actually like to point out first that one of the ones that came from comprehensive review. And that is one, and the reason I want to point it out, because uh, there is a significant difference in it from the 2010 um, guidelines. 
And you guys, of course, might remember the indication for ERCP based on ASG 2010 guidelines were that you can proceed with ERCP if you have one very strong predictor or two strong predictors of cholelithiasis. And what um, the ASG guidelines did, they essentially broke down um, broke down the uh, pretest probability or risk of cholelithiasis in three groups: into low, less than ten percent, a ten to fifty percent intermediate group, and more than fifty percent high uh, risk group. And for patients who were considered to be high risk group, uh, you you could proceed with the RCP without any need for intermediate uh, additional tests. And in the 2010 guidelines, the very strong predictors was considered to be a bilirubin of more than four. So basically, if you had a bilirubin of more than four, you could just proceed with the RCP. But validation studies, and they are very nicely summarized in the ASG guidelines from this recent ones, showed that it's, if you are following the 2010 guidelines, you're going to end up with doing up to 20 to 30% of diagnostics ERCPs, which is nowadays is unacceptable. And the, the test characteristics for, for this sort of strong predictors were really not adequate if you were following uh, ASG 2010 guidelines. However, changing the predictors from having just bilirubin of more than four to having bilirubin of more than four and dilated bile duct increase the specificity from 70-some percent to above 90. And that is what the current guidelines state, that you can uh, or you should proceed with ERCP in, the, in what is considered to be a strong predictor is having both elevated bilirubin above 4 and dilated bile duct, which is considered in young patient more than 6 millimeter in older more than 8 millimeter. And that is, I think, is a significant change. It also sort of a, a f opposite side of that coin is that you increased, so, so now the group that is intermediate risk is increased. So that put more emphasis on the role of minimally or less invasive imaging tests such as endoscopic ultrasound and MRCP uh, in evaluating this group of patients. Um, and that is one of the four main questions that the guidelines analyzed with a grade framework. And that was the question, what is the diagnostic utility for U.S. versus MRCP to confirm cholelithiasis in the patient in that intermediate group? And Although the, um, I believe the quality of evidence was considered to be low, but there is, um, there is um, meta-analysis and increasing amount of data that endoscopic ultrasound has higher sensitivity than MRCP. Uh, it's almost 10% uh, difference. Specificity are similar. They're above 90%. And... I think the main reason why there is a win in the sensitivity 
is because EUS is much better at detecting small stone. There was actually another study that looked at that and showed that uh, for stones that are less six millimeter in size, having uh, EUS is more sensitive uh, than MRCP in detecting them. Uh, nothing is ever perfect, and we, uh, we know that. And sure, uh, there are questions with increased use of EUS, and that is uh, need for anesthesia. Uh, although it's a very safe technique, but there is a finite risk of complications. Um, so, the, and the question of cost effectiveness in the, in the setting of the need for anesthesia and potential risk of adverse events. On the other hand, on the uh, opposite side for MRCP, there is a question of claustrophobia. There is a question of, you know, patients who use uh, pacemakers. So this is one of the, I think, uh, sort of future questions that would need to be answered in terms of cost effectiveness uh, of this two different approaches. That's why the guidelines actually state that using either one of them uh, into intermediate uh probability group is the way to go. Um, and it's based on your local expertise and availability of resources. That's what one would choose. Uh, we here, uh, because we're the one who's doing both, for us uh, it's easy enough. It adds five minutes to the procedure. And uh, uh, it's been shown before, as well as we're su supported in our experience, uh, EUS decreases number of ERCPs that are done by about 20-30%. So that is the sort of additional um, advantage. So that was an important point in this, uh, so that was an important point in this guidelines. The second major question was addressing the use of early ERCP in the setting gallstone pancreatitis. And that's a critical question because in the previous one, the thought was that the ERCP is indicated in, in any gallstone pancreatitis, and there is really no data supporting that. However, oh, sort of one word of caution, and the guidelines are very clear about that, that in the patients who have evidence of cholangitis or evidence of biliary obstruction, there, there is data, especially in the setting of cholangitis, that early RCP improves mortality as well as local and uh, overall systemic complications of gallstone pancreatitis. You can ask me what is early. Early is actually uh, within 48 hours of presentation. So, and definitely in the setting of cholangitis, uh, it's less than 12 probably is the best way to go. Uh, but just... Doing RCP for every patient of gallstone uh, pancreatitis is not recommended, and it's actually guidelines recommend against it. But again, for patients who do show evidence of biliary obstruction and uh, for sure cholangitis, early RCP is, is the way to go. And the other uh, point to make is that um, there's always at least in the past, we had this concern, well, we have a patient with pancreatitis. How is that we're going to do ERCP? There is a chance of, uh, you know, further complications. But at least uh, the studies has been reviewed. Uh, and just my personal experience is that uh, there were no 
increased risk of adverse events. So there was mortality benefits in the setting of biliary obstruction. I'm sorry, in the setting of cholangitis, uh, and trend towards mortality benefit in the in the setting of biliary obstruction, but no increased risk for adverse event. So that is definitely something that should be considered. And then the third question in that, um, in, the, in sort of the main questions that were addressed, is in patients with large stones, what is the role of uh, papillary dilation after sphincterotomy versus sphincterotomy alone? And um, there was an extensive review of literature, um, and I think the vote uh, all the conditional goes towards uh, sphincterotomy with dilation rather than sphincterotomy alone. And uh, dilation, I'm a big fan of uh, structuroplasty. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, sphincteroplasty. And um, it's, there's data showing more likely ductal clearance, less need for mechanical lithotripsy. There is a recent multi-center trial from Japan and Korea, uh, I believe 22 centers uh, that uh, showed improved doctoral clearance. There is a word of caution here though, is that uh, what is the, 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 what should be the extent of sphincterotomy? Should we go all the way or we should leave a little room behind? And it seems based on uh, this study's data as well as others, Leaving a little rim is not necessarily a bad idea because you have a less likely risk of perforation and you have less likely a, a risk of bleeding. Uh, so that is definitely sphincteroplasty, but with a little rim with sphincterotomy. The fourth uh, question was uh, role of ERCP-guided Introductal therapy, such as EHL and laser dilatory versus for the large stones. Well put, very comprehensive. Dr. Riker, thank you again for joining us on Endocast and providing this important guideline update. As a follow-up to this podcast, on our next episode, you'll be taking us through your specific techniques for stone management in 2020. I know you see a huge volume of stones every year, and the audience will look forward to hearing about how you manage those. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit us at endosuite.com. That's endosuite.com, which features over 70 physician-led educational videos, including lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases, as individual results may vary. 
The law restricts devices to sale by or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France only and by prescription only.